Sure good to be with all of you. We enjoyed a wonderful, sweet visit up in Manhattan yesterday with uh, several of the saints up there and a few of you here, and uh, we're just delighted to be able to do that. Didn't know. We've been looking forward for weeks to coming this weekend, um, and then Brother Stephen, I'll, I'll, I'll put the blame where it, where it belongs, which is not on Brother Stephen, because he warned us ahead of time. He said, now the weather in March can be a little bit fickle up here, and we thought, yeah, that's okay. We'll, we looked out in the forecast. 10, 14, 21 days ahead. It looks fine. So, um, so we went ahead and scheduled uh, to come up here, and and then the last 48 hours leading up to the trip, Rhonda kept watching the reports and the the, the brewing storm and uh, the, the, all the winds and possible snow and ice that were going to be coming. And I kept checking my airline app on my phone, and it kept saying, "Yeah, your flight's fine. Don't worry about it." So I told Rhonda not to worry about it, and. Um, she uh, she kept an eye on the things from her side, and I kept an eye on my things. I was actually out of town for a couple of days before the trip. So uh, apart from each other, we were both watching the news reports then. And, and then all of a sudden, on the day that we were supposed to leave, in fact, just an hour or so before we were supposed to leave Chattanooga, we got an alert that our flight had been canceled. So we went to the airport and tried to rearrange the travel, and, and the lady there was very sweet, but just... Her hands were tied. She said, there's, there's nothing available, not only from Chattanooga, but from Atlanta or anything in the southeast to any of the airports in the New York area. There's nothing available until Saturday night at the earliest. And um, so we were, we were a little, well, we were distressed, but we, were, we also had a peace about it because we had prayed on the way to the airport that the Lord would work out whatever was best. You know, we, man makes plans, but God directs our steps. And even if our plans don't come to fruition, if we're trusting in the Lord and, and as brother Steve Aquino said, you know, just looking for, for his direction and provision and realizing we must depend on him for everything, then whatever that outcome is, we can be at peace with. But as Rhonda and the, the flight attendant lady were talking, I was checking my app again and the lady was going through her computer and remember she's the official Delta employee with access to the latest and greatest information and she said every plane on here has zero showing zero seats zero seats zero seats available and and I was looking at my phone and seeing nothing available too and then all of a sudden up pops a 7 a.m. Saturday flight with three seats available in the same row and it was exit row seating with extra leg room. I felt like they were about to offer me a purple pillow or something. It was just way too, way too uh, much all at once. And, uh, and I clicked the button on the phone to accept it. And I said, I think we've got tickets. And she said, that's impossible. And, uh, and she, she looked again on her computer and there was nothing there. But then when I gave her the information for the screen, she was able to print us out an itinerary. And she said, I guess it's for real. So we went down there early in the morning on Saturday to Atlanta. And as we were making our way up into the sky, uh, asked the steward on the plane. I said, was this plane scheduled at the last minute? And he said, apparently so. He said, I didn't find out until just a little bit before the flight took off that I was supposed to be on this plane. So the plane was only about two thirds full and, uh, they treated us like Kings on the flight up here. And we had almost no turbulence and a very uneventful flight made good time. And brother Steven said from JFK, all the way to where the meeting in Manhattan was, he said, you can maybe get there. He, he sounded, you know, hopeful, but not quite certain from a 915 arrival to a 1030 time of starting service, you know, getting out of the airport and getting into a cab and everything. He said, you might make it if you have a very motivated or aggressive taxi cab driver. Well, <clears throat> we uh, had to go through a long line of waiting for taxi cabs, which made no sense at all. There's some inefficient processes up here. Whenever the government gets involved, there were 50 cabs in a row and we walked up and looked at the 
the last cab driver in line and waved at him, and he pointed at the front of the line. And so we had to walk through this wind that almost blew us on our back on our, off of our feet all the way to the front of the line, then get in the line and wait while we sat there and watched those cabs do nothing. And we, st- we stood in the line and thought, this, something is wrong with this process. But finally, they got us to the front of the line, shoved us in a cab. We took off, and the cab driver didn't talk to us at all. He was on the phone talking another language to somebody else the entire drive. But um, his philosophy of driving was, whatever lane you're not allowed to be in, that's the lane I'm going to use. And... <laughs> And so we zipped past dozens of cabs that were all dutifully obeying all the traffic laws. And we went in the lanes that said buses only. And we went in the lanes that said oncoming traffic only. And we went, we went in every lane and, and things that weren't even lanes to, to, uh, to get there. And he got us right to the doorstep and walked in. And suddenly there was just a peace and a calm that settled over us in that, in that uh, sweet sanctuary of worship. And, uh, and we enjoyed a delightful visit there. So... That sense of peace and calm is what I want to kind of talk to you about this morning. That sense of of resting in the Lord. Hebrews 4, we're going to go there in a minute, but it says, There remaineth therefore now a rest for the people of God. And I want to talk to you about a principle related to rest. Now, before I get to that, I want to tell you something about feet washing. You know, back in the day, if you've studied church history at all, read the the records of churches up in this part of the country, uh, Mount Carmel is probably one of not too many churches in this area that have practiced feet washing since probably the earliest days of the church's existence, mostly because it was constituted with ministers and members who were transplants from the south where feet washing was already a well-observed practice down there. But it's interesting if you read through church history, our forefathers in England, in the British Isles, our forefathers in America... There were many, there were the majority of churches or a great many churches that did practice the regular washing of the saints' feet in accordance with the example and instruction of John chapter 13, Jesus' words there. But for whatever reason, historically, many of the churches or some of the churches in the northern climes of the British Isles and many of the churches in the northern climes of what became the United States never did practice the washing of the saints' feet. In fact, the first church I pastored up in Wilmington, Delaware, had never practiced the washing of the saints' feet. And um, as I read the, the church history surrounding this practice or lack of this practice in some corners, I, I was intrigued by the, the, the discussions, the writings, the debates sometimes around this subject. And one of my favorite of our writers of old and, and ministers of old is Sylvester Hassel. Those are two good names. If you've got any boy babies being born, Sylvester and Hassel, well, Hassel, I don't know. It could be appropriate. Um, but... Uh, we, we never, it didn't fit our naming pattern. We were going with four-letter boys' names, and so we ended up naming our cats Sylvester and Hassel, and they, <laughs> they, uh, they didn't fare too well. But, um, but a great name and a great towering figure, a man of God in our history in North Carolina and across the nation, his influence spread. But I read an article in which he was gently laboring with our northern brethren, uh, including some of the Daily Brethren, Elder John R. Daly and some of those folks that were, came from churches where they had not historically practiced feet washing. And he said, uh, paraphrase, but in Sylvester Hassel's article, he said something like this. He said, I'm so thankful that in the midst of all the debates around this subject of feet washing, I'm thankful that we have not seen a departure from the spirit of feet washing. I thought that was a profound observation because, you know, you can talk about grace with your fangs bared. 
You can talk about the sweetest, most beautiful subjects revealed to us in the Word of God in a way that makes even the people who agree with you want to change their minds. And, and, and in the subject of feet washing, which is, according to the example and the, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, is an act of servitude and humility, wouldn't it be a terrible shame to have a debate in which we lost the spirit of servitude and had a spirit of arrogance instead of humility? We, we would sort of miss the whole point. And so I, that was a profound observation from Sylvester Hassel. And sadly, I think after his death, uh, the issue did become more contentious. And there are still churches down in, I know of a couple of churches in Georgia that stopped having anything to do with each other. Not because they disagreed on feet washing. They both practiced feet washing. But one of them had a visiting minister from right north who didn't practice feet washing. And the other one said, you can't do that. So, so that spirit of, of warmth and service and humility um, was lost in some of those debates. So I want to talk to you about a subject today that I don't know. I, perhaps we all agree on it already today, and that's wonderful if we do. But perhaps there are some here today who have a different view of this subject. And I hope that we can discuss the subject of the Sabbath, or what I'm going to call the Sabbath principle. I hope that we can examine that topic from the Word of God today with a spirit of peaceful rest with a spirit of seeking the meaning of that Sabbath so that even if in the end you say, well, Brother Andrew, I appreciate the case you set forth. I don't fully agree with it, but I think we can agree to disagree. I think we can agree to study it further or discuss it further. I think that would be a wonderful thing. In other words, I'm not expecting or demanding you to agree with me this morning. What I'm expecting of all of us is that we give attention to the Word of God and consider the principles, the truths set forth in the Word of God as it relates to a practical dimension to this subject of Rest. Now, one thing that I have um, observed in my kids and in myself in earlier days is that sometimes we human beings, we wait until we are so tired that we can't take another step to get some rest. It turns out that that is not the best way to live. I mean, there are moments where that becomes necessary. You're flying an airplane. That's not a good time to take a nap. You're, uh, you're on the front lines of the battlefield. You might have to go 24 or 48 hours without closing your eyes so that you can stay alive. There are times and seasons where, where that kind of intense attentiveness is, is simply necessary. But in the course of ordinary life, even in the course of the, the ordinary sorts of emergencies, if I can use that phrase, ordinary emergencies that come up in, in our lives, uh, there is a need for rest. And a young pastor who, who, uh, whose blog I read uh, uh, sometime a few days ago in relation to this subject, he was describing his experience with a very busy season in his life, a baby being born, changes going on in their family, uh, studying uh, in school and getting ready, looking for a, his, the first church he was going to serve as pastor. And he said, and yet it's amazing. He says, I've never felt this calm and peaceful in my life. And his article was about observing a day of rest. And one of the principles that really just stuck in my mind from his article was this. He says, you need to rest before you realize you need it. Don't rest only after you've exhausted yourself and then say, wow, I need some rest. Rest as a matter of habit. Rest each evening, each day, each 24-hour cycle as you have the opportunity, your schedule allows. Some people work shift work and crazy hours and maybe their nighttime, their sleep is from 5 a.m. to noon or something. But still, get that pattern, that habitual rest and, to our point today in the message, have a weekly observance of a time away from the stresses and cares of the world. One day in seven. 
That's not that much to ask or to expect. And, and the thing of it is, as we'll see from the Word of God today, it's not something that God is putting on us as a test or a burden or some uh, arbitrary obligation. Jesus goes so far as to say, I'm doing this for you. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't create a bunch of rules and then say, I need some people to follow these rules. God created man, and the image of God created he, male and female created he them, and God taught, God revealed, that word is even used in relation to the Sabbath principle, that God has revealed or disclosed this mysterious, this profound truth to us in his word, by his revelation, for our good, as well as for his glory. We need that rest whether we realize it or not. And if you get the rest before you know you realize it, it does you even more good. You know, uh, Rhonda said that her parents had a saying growing up in the house. There, was, there were meal times, and if it was time to eat, it was time to eat. You didn't get to say, I'm busy watching my TV program. I'm busy doing this other thing. I'm not going to come to dinner. And if the child said, I'm not hungry, then their parents would say to them, you don't eat because you're hungry. You eat in order to avoid becoming hungry. And that discipline of eating on a scheduled basis and having those family times together produces outcomes that involve better health and better self-control and better habits. And so so in a similar manner to to, uh, eating on 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 a schedule, resting on a schedule turns out to be very beneficial. I'm talking about physically, intellectually, emotionally, and yes, I'm talking about spiritually as well, that we need this principle of the Sabbath rest. So, in the Word of God, there's a, if you just take a concordance or your Bible software and look up the word Sabbath, and maybe put an asterisk at the end so you catch all the plurals as well, and you look up all the occurrences of Sabbaths in the Scripture, you'll find a great multitude of God's statement of principles around the Sabbath. I'm not going to touch on all those this morning, but there's one here that I want to focus on and bring your attention to. And it's found in Exodus chapter 23, verse 12. And here God is instituting not only the, the weekly Sabbath, but he's instituting the principle of a Sabbath of years as well. Every seven years, he says, every seventh year, you let the land rest. And then you have a Sabbath of those cycles as well. Every seven sevens, so after 49 years, the 50th year is even more special. It's a year of jubilee. It's a year when the land returns to its ancestral owners. It's a year when all the slaves and servants go free. It's a year when all debts are forgiven. Sadly, there is no historical record of God's people Israel ever actually observing that year of Jubilee. Isn't it amazing that God could provide with such detail and such care a blessing of such magnitude and proportion. It would be a, it's like hitting the reset button on all of society. Have you ever wished I could just have a blank slate and start all over again? That's exactly what this year of Jubilee symbolized. And of course it symbolized the ultimate year of Jubilee, the ultimate Jubilee of Christ himself, the Redeemer who comes to wipe the slate clean, the Redeemer who comes to set the captives free, the Redeemer who comes to give the land rest and healing and recuperation. And somehow those Israelites, either they observed it and it just didn't get written down or my suspicion is they never got around to observing it because there was always some distraction. There was always some regulation that they came up with that reinterpreted the word of God so that they could avoid observing that rest. But in this principle of the Sabbath rest in Exodus chapter, chapter 23, here's what God instructs his people through Moses. Verse 10, in six years shalt thou sow thy land and 
gather the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner, thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy olive yard. And then he comes back to the weekly Sabbath in verse 12. Six days shalt thou do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be, and here's the word, refreshed. Refreshed. I love that word. There's something refreshing about the word refresh. It just, it sounds like, you know, bubbles coming to the top of a tall glass of an ice cold carbonated drink. Refresh. It just feels, wow, I feel refreshed just thinking about refreshment. And God said that is one of the purposes of this Sabbath principle. It's not the only purpose. He said there were some other purposes as well. I won't go through all the references, but he says things like, it, it's, this is a day that God has made special. I sanctified this day. He says, this day that I've made special, when you observe it, it will also help you to sanctify me. It will make God more special to you when you observe the special day that God has set aside, sanctified to himself. But he also says, when you observe this day, it will be a reminder that I have made you special. You will feel like God's special people when you observe God's special day that reminds you how special God himself is. It's a reminder. It's a little ritual. it's It's a habit. It's like, if I can stretch the analogy a little bit, it's like that family dinner time around the table. And now with uh, people growing out of their teenage years into adulthood in my household, if you come home at night, there's so many cars parked out in front of my house, you think we're having a party every night. And we are, but it's just my own kids. And uh, uh, Annabelle, Priscilla, Adelaide, and Joel all driving a car. Noah with a permit, can't wait to drive later in a few months on his own. And then Rhonda's vehicle and my vehicle and an old beat up pickup truck that doesn't go anywhere. And it looks like a used car lot out there. Well, um, It's hard with kids going every direction with school and work and friends and other activities. I get it's a challenge to all take time to sit down around the table together. But we make it an an effort to do that. And this won't sound like any great accomplishment to you. But we make an effort to do that at least once a week. I mean, there was a time when we made the effort to do that every single day. But we're at a place now where that's just not possible on a consistent basis. But we try to have that special time because it draws us closer to each other. It puts some routine into our lives. It gives us an opportunity to sort of reset, rebaseline with one another. How's your week been? I meant to talk to you yesterday. I didn't get around to it. What's on your mind? What struggles are you facing? How can I help you to have those conversations in that moment of togetherness? Well, friends, if you think about the Sabbath in that light, it's a very, it serves a very similar purpose, among other purposes. And that is to allow us to gather together. We used to have a hymn in the number 11 edition of this hymnal that talked about it was a day of holy convocations. And that's another scriptural description of the Sabbath day. A day of holy convocation. A day that's not just about you finding a quiet spot on a mossy bank by a creek somewhere and resting. But it's about you and your brothers and sisters coming together to celebrate. To say this day is special, you are special because our God is special and he has called us to be his special children, his sanctified ones. 
It was a, 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 a symbol, of course, of the, the, from the dawn of creation. God on the seventh day, having created the earth and all that was therein, in six days, on the seventh day he rested. And you probably figured this out, but let me just be clear about it. God didn't rest because he was tired. God hadn't overexerted himself or pulled a muscle in the amazing work of six days of creation. So if God didn't rest because he was tired, why did he rest? He rested for us, for an example for us. And although the law of Sabbath keeping was not explicitly stated until Mount Sinai or thereabouts, you see that Sabbath principle manifesting itself even before then because God gave them manna before he gave them the law in the wilderness. He fed them before he taught them. And when he gave them the manna, he said on the sixth day, gather up twice as much. Don't gather any manna. In fact, there won't be any manna on the seventh day. And I'm going to provide for you in that special way. And I'm going to teach you a principle that I'm going to explain to you later. That's a good way to teach, by the way. You got kids in the house, show them and then explain it. Remember when Israel crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the promised land, God said, make a big mountain of stones. And every time your kids ask you, what about that mountain of stones? You tell them about God who delivered you out of Egypt into the promised land. You show them and then you teach them. And so this principle of rest was something that was, was built. And this is an important point. It's built into the very fabric of our world in a way that is frankly nothing short of miraculous. Because if you think about the calendar in your refrigerator or on your iPhone, that calendar has several patterns in it. One of those patterns is the pattern of the year. Do you know why? And and people have struggled, the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar, all these different calendars down through the ages of people trying to get it just right, 365 and one fourth day. Every leap year, we add that fourth, that extra day in there. Except I think every hundred years, we have to delete a leap day. It's very complex and detailed, but there's there's a clear physical basis for the year. The earth goes around the sun one time every year. So there's a physical phenomenon that points us to God that serves as the basis for our observance of a year. And what about the month? Well, there is a physical phenomenon that's the basis for that as well. That's the moon going around the earth approximately every 28 days. And so we have months that that started out as 28 days and then people rounded them to 30 or 31 Except February still has 28, except in leap year it has 29. But, but there's, a, there's a loose, physical, a clear physical basis for, in creation, for the observance of the month. And, of course, there's an extremely clear basis in creation for the observance of the day. And that is the sun rises and the sun sets because the earth is spinning on its axis. And so every 24 hours, your, your hours of daylight and your hours of darkness change through the course of the year. But they always add up to 24 hours. And so that's why we have the, 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 the physical basis for our calendar showing us today is today and tomorrow is tomorrow. But, friends, have you ever considered the fact that there is nothing in nature to serve as the basis for the week. There is no physical phenomenon. There's nothing the sun does, the moon does, the earth does, the stars do. There's nothing in nature that says there's a seven-day cycle going on. And yet, anthropologists have been amazed and historians have been amazed that in virtually every culture, in every corner of the earth, as far back as they can dig and look, people were observing the seven-day week. Where did that come from? It's like the legends in other cultures that had never known of the word of God, but they said in the beginning of time, there was a great flood that covered the earth. Where did they come up with that story? 
It's because their grandfathers were told by their grandfathers who were told by their grandfathers about the real flood that happened. And just as they were told about the flood, they were told about the seven-day creation week. Now, there's all sorts of myths. There's turtles and spiders and other things creating the world in different cultures and in, in, in different time periods in history. But the one feature that remains consistent is they live their lives according to this seven-day cycle. In fact, it was, so, it was such a thorn in the side of the anti-Christian influences and forces of the French Revolution Some people look at at the 1700s as the period of revolution, and they say the American Revolution was one, and the French Revolution was another, born by the same spirit of populism and and self-determination and revolt. Well, there were some outward similarities, but friends, those two revolutions could not have been any, any more different. Because the American Revolution was prayerfully and carefully founded on principles of the Word of God. People did not rush into battle. The fighting chaplain, John Gano, did not rush into battle in disregard of all that the Word of God teaches about submission to the powers that be. No, it was something that had been prayed about and talked about and debated and studied for years, for over a decade, before war was ever fought. But in the French Revolution, the motivations were exactly the opposite. They wanted to tear down the church. They wanted to tear down Christianity. They wanted to tear down the monarchy and other political power structures as well. But they wanted to overthrow everything that resembled any form of authority. And as part of that process, they wanted to abolish the seven-day week. They hated it so much because they knew what people today have forgotten, which is the mere existence of the week points toward God in a way that no one can answer And so they said, let's get rid of the seven-day week. And this was about the time they were coming up with the the decimal system. May a pox be upon it. (laughs) Against the decimal system. No, that's all right. I I use decimals sometimes. I use the uh, uh, force of the acceleration due to gravity, 9.8 meters per second squared. Yes, I I can do decimal system. But they were coming up with the decimal system. And they said, you know what would make perfect sense is if we had a 10-day week. And they thought, not only do we, we can kill two birds with one stone, not only do we get rid of God this way, but we get people to work a lot more without realizing it. We tell them at the end of every week, you still get a day off, but it's a 10-day week. Do you know what happened? They had to repeal all those laws barely two years after they were instituted because they found that productivity did not go up. It went down. Men's and women's health declined. And to show that this is not a purely psychological phenomenon, even the animals became sick and died at a higher rate when they tried to enforce a 10-day week. It was woven into the very fabric of God's creation without any obvious physical antecedent for the seven-day week. It was woven into the fabric of God's creation that you and I need a rest every seven days. And today, people dismiss it as something that's just, oh, well, that's just a law-keeping. That's just something from the Old Testament. That's not important. God understands. We make every manner of excuse to avoid the thing that God has given us for our benefit, as well as to hallow his name and to call him out before all creation and say, before all the earth and say, yes, there is a God, and that's why today is Tuesday. Yes, the days are all named after the Norse gods, but the, the fact that there are those days at all is due to the one true and living God. So let's see a few principles in relation to this Sabbath principle to help us better understand what it might mean for us today. In Isaiah chapter 58, the old prophet is writing uh, words of rebuke to God's people in Israel. And he's telling them, again, that they've become legalistic and ritualistic in some of their observances. 
You see, I mean, God is, the, 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 the Sabbath is not, again, some arbitrary regulation that God just thought it'd be fun to have a list of rules that make no sense, and then I'll make some people that'll be around to follow them. Uh, the, the Sabbath makes sense if we observe it God's way. And he says here, Isaiah 58, verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So what's he saying there? In a nutshell, he says, don't make it a day where you simply do what you want to do. That's not what the Sabbath is about. Some people turn the Sabbath into a a special weekly rest day. They turn it into a day of pure recreation. Now, I'm not worried about going out and throwing a Frisbee on a Sunday afternoon. I do that with my kids. It's it's an act of rest. It's an act of uh, refreshing. But but I don't turn the day into a day of exhausting, grueling physical recreation where I've got to take the next six days to catch up for and rest from and recover from my so-called day of rest. He says, don't make the Sabbath about just doing what you want to do. He said, realize that the Sabbath is my holy day. It's God's day. It's for our good and for his glory. And he says, when you do this, you'll be able to call the Sabbath a delight. It will not be an onerous burden. It will not be a legalistic ritual observance. It will rather be a precious treasure, a gift from God for your refreshment, for your convocation together, for your collective worship and service to one another. And we're going to see in the New Testament, Jesus says it's a great day to get out and help people too. It's a day to promote healing. It's a day to to do good works. It's a day to, to minister to those who are in need and maybe you were too busy the rest of the week to do. It's a wonderful, delightful blessing. And if we do that, he said, we'll find that it is a path of great joy and blessedness. All right, let's go over into the New Testament now. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Here in Mark 2.27, Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. You see, Galatians alludes, in the fourth chapter of Galatians, there's an allusion to um, people slipping back into the law, and their mindset there was that they actually made an idol out of the day. The Sabbath became the object of their worship, worshiping a day. That's not what God is calling us to do. The day is not the object of worship. It'd be like on Christmas morning if mom and dad loved you so much that they scrimped and saved all year long to get you that one little perfect gift that they just knew would mean so much to you and you opened the gift and got so excited about the gift you forgot all about mom and dad and you ran out and played all day long and never said thank you. Your your focus is on the gift and not the giver and that would be the the, the way to to abuse or misuse the Sabbath observance the way that many Jews did which was to focus on the day itself as the object of attention rather than as the gift from Almighty God drawing our attention to Him and so Jesus reminds us I'm in charge of the Sabbath you Pharisees are not in charge of the Sabbath I know you got a big long list of rules I'm going to ignore those instead I'm going to look at the, the, the principles that my Father spoke to you through His Holy Word and I'm going to tell you that I'm the one who gave you this gift and therefore I'm going to tell you how to observe it for your good and for God's glory. The Sabbath was not made, I'm sorry, man was not made for the Sabbath. You aren't the afterthought. The Sabbath was made as a gift. It was made for you. And then let's go back into the book of Matthew. One of our famous passages there, Matthew chapter 11, 
It doesn't use the word Sabbath, but it has a, a thought that goes right along with the Sabbath principle. It's in um, Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. Well, back in verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't want that? Jesus to bear our yoke alongside of us and to give us this rest that is such a precious and today such a a rare and much needed commodity. And again, I'm not talking about only physical rest, but it does include this dimension of physical rest as well. In fact, in Hebrew, the word Sabbath starts with not the sound of S. It starts with the sound of S-H, Shabbat. And again, another unique feature of every culture, virtually every culture, is that mamas trying to quiet down fussy little babies have learned through the years that all you have to do is make this sound softly in their ears, and it has a remarkably soothing effect. The sound, like the waves coming into the shore, like a soft, gentle rain on the roof, just hushing the baby quietly into peace, into calm. It's as if our Heavenly Father is hushing His children into calm as He dandles us on His knee and says, take the time, stop. The literal meaning of the word Sabbath is stop. (laughs) Stop doing what you were doing yesterday. Stop doing what you thought about this morning when you woke up and thought, i got to get this done today. Stop. It means cease and desist. It means just put it aside. And yes, derivative from that, it means rest. But you rest by stopping doing the thing that's not rest, that's not doesn't bring rest. And so he's hushing us with that soft sound. And he's telling us to lay aside the burdens and labors and cares and concerns of the week. The old writers, Jewish and Christian, said it involves ceasing from our works, from our words, and even from our thoughts in which we would engage the other six day of the week to lay those burdens down at the door of the house of God and to walk in open and receptive to his rejuvenating rest. And I don't want to make too much of this, but one writer I read after actually points out as well that in the Hebrew and the English word Sabbath, in the middle of the word, what's there? A-B-B-A. Abba. The child, the infantile name for his father. The name which the word of God says he is to us. He is our Abba Father. So Abba observes the Shabbath as he holds us on his knee and whispers sweet hushings into our ears. To me, my tired, weary, exasperated soul needs that desperately. You may realize you need that too, but even if you don't realize you need it, you do. So get the rest before you get to the point in life where you think, I've gone 50 years and I've never had that year of jubilee. I've never had the rest from my labors. I've never taken a moment to turn aside from the cares of the world. Let's look at a few more of the teachings of Jesus as we move toward the close of the message here. Luke chapter 4. I want to turn to several um, 
passages in Luke here, so we'll just keep flipping through. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This, was, this is a glorious occasion where Jesus reads from the gospel of Isaiah. I'm sorry, the prophet Isaiah. Sometimes we do call it the gospel of Isaiah because it just about is. But uh, he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah at his hometown in Nazareth at the synagogue. And it is a, a glorious almost unsettling uh, declaration of his messiahship. He walks into church like he does every Saturday. This is Jesus in the Jewish church observing the Sabbath on the Saturday. And it says in Luke four sixteen, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, that means Jesus was in the habit of going to church. And again, it's synagogue. And yes, it's Saturday, not Sunday. But you see, he had a weekly Sabbath observance. This Jesus himself As God didn't need rest any more than God the Father needed rest on the seventh day of the creation week. But as man and as our example, he had the habit and the custom of going to church, I'm putting quote marks around that, on the Sabbath day. As his custom was, he went to the synagogue, verse 16 says, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So a big scroll, and there's time for the Hebrew men to to take a turn reading a scripture if the Lord had laid it in their heart. And so Jesus said yes, and he took the scroll, and he opened it up, and he went specifically to this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister... And he sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It was on the Sabbath that the true Sabbath, Jesus Christ himself, said, I am here. I am here to deliver. I am here to heal. I am here to set free. I am here to redeem. I am here to do the work that I've told you for generation after generation I would come to do. In Luke chapter 6 verse 5, in another debate with some of the Pharisees about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed on the Sabbath, they got upset because some of the disciples plucked some ears of corn and ate them on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says to them, as he said in Matthew, he says in Luke 6, 5, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Don't get into an argument with Jesus about how to observe the days that he made. He said, look, I'm in charge of this. This is my ordinance. I'm the one that's going to explain this to you. Don't try to explain it to me. In in verse 9 of the same chapter, he says, I want to ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Because they had set up a trap for him with a man with a withered hand thinking if he heals this man, then he'll be doing work on the Sabbath and we can condemn Jesus and we can shut him up and we can run him out of town. And he asks them this question, what do you think the Sabbath is about? Is it about doing good things or bad things? He said, clearly the implication is it's about doing good things. And so then he says, stretch forth your hand. And he does. And his hand was restored whole as the others. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Somebody might not appreciate your observance of a Sabbath principle. Somebody might say, no, we really, really need you at work on Sunday. I had that experience, and I'm not holding myself up as any kind of profound example on this. There are many who have done far better than me. But I know from my own experience, when I worked in New York City and worked at a law firm where 80 hours a week was not unheard of uh, for my workload there and others as well, and there was a young Jewish lady 
Orthodox Jewish lady who talked to the bosses and explained to them, I will do whatever I need to do, but I won't be here from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday because that is my Sabbath. And after I worked one Sunday up there, one Sunday afternoon, I thought, this can't be right. First of all, I've gone through a whole week and I was starting to feel like those horses in the French Revolution. I didn't have my day off and I was about to fall down. And secondly, even though it was a long day off, it was a three-hour drive down here to church every Sunday when we lived in New York, but it was a refreshing day off. And I thought, if, if, if this dear woman who is misguided in her understanding of the scriptures has the fortitude and the courage to say, I need my Sabbath off, why in the world can't I go do the same thing? And I went and sat down with my boss and I said, I need the rest. And I said, I need to honor my God. I said, I need to ensure that I won't have to work on any Sunday again, unless it's an absolute emergency and the building's burning down. And I will assure you that I'll be here every hour of all the other days of the week that you need me. And he nodded. He said, okay, I can't say no to that request. Now, there are jobs, and we'll see here, Jesus says that healing on the Sabbath day is a noble work. There, I'm glad we have doctors in the hospitals on Sundays. I'm glad we have policemen on the streets on Sundays. If we didn't have those things, then society would come to a screeching, uh, chaotic halt. I'm not sure that it's equally necessary to have football players on the fields on Sundays. I don't know. Maybe that's a societal essential, but it doesn't seem like that society would fall apart if we didn't have all these other jobs functioning on Sundays. But you know what? If, if, if one by one, I'm not trying to legislate. I'm not trying to say we should make the law of the land. Thou shalt play no football on Sunday. But I am saying that one by one, as we see the challenge and try to prioritize this rest principle in our own lives, then God may honor that and bless us to experience more and more of what he intends as Lord of the Sabbath for us to experience. In Luke chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus says, just like you would loose your animal if it were tied up or trapped in a thicket on the Sabbath day, he said, I'm going to loose this woman who's been in bondage. I'm going to loose this woman from bondage even though it's been on the Sabbath day. Luke 13, 16. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You see the corrupt legalism that had twisted the minds of the Pharisees where they were all about don't, 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 don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And Jesus went in there and overturned those tables just like he did the money changers tables in the temple. And he said, those are not my rules at all. Those are your made up rules. The rule is to honor the Lord on this day. And that may mean sometimes doing harder, more difficult work on Sunday than you did the rest of the week. You may be pulling a a brother's car out of the ditch, literally. You may be pulling a brother's bacon out of the fire in some spiritual struggle that he's enduring. You may be more exhausted at the end of a Sabbath day, but if you're doing good on that Sabbath day, you're honoring the Lord if he brought that opportunity into your path. In Luke 14, 3, he heals a leprous man. And when he's challenged by the lawyers and Pharisees, Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? That's why I've never had a quarrel with any nurse or doctor in my congregation that says, I'm sorry, Brother Andrew, I can't make it to church. I've got to be at the hospital on Saturday. I say, keep a bed there for me. I might be coming in if I need it. And so it's good to have, you know, people in those roles fulfilling those callings. But you need the rest. And let me make this point. The principle, the, the reason I call it the Sabbath principle and not merely the Sabbath is I do think. Romans 14 and Colossians 2 tell us that we're not supposed to be about exalting one day above another. We're not supposed to be about a ritual legalistic observance of one day in seven. Rather, he says, Colossians says, these things are a shadow of that which is to come. And the fullness, the body of that shadow is Christ himself. You know, I have a friend, a cousin actually, who lives in an Arab country right now, uh, UAE, across the ocean, where... The, the, the structure of society is completely different over there. 
And he said to me one day, he said, Andrew, Friday is our Sunday. That's the day they get off work. And so Friday is the day the churches meet over there. It's not the day they would have preferred. They prefer, like the old churches of Acts and, and, and throughout church history have done, to observe the first day of the week in honor of Christ's resurrection from the dead. But do I think he's violating the Sabbath principle because he's worshiping God on Friday with the other Christians in UAE instead of worshiping God on Sunday? I don't think that for a minute. I think the day could come in our lifetime or our children's lifetimes or even in this country where we've enjoyed so much precious religious liberty for 200, over 200 years, the day could come when suddenly that begins to erode and be taken away from us. And friends, whatever day you get out of the week that you can meet together with brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll be grateful for. It could be a Tuesday and you'll say, thank God it's Tuesday and you'll get together and worship him in spirit and in truth. So the principle is one day in seven. I think people who obsess about whether it's Saturday or Sunday have missed the boat altogether. The point is the week goes on every seven days and one day out of those seven we should be worshiping the Lord for a threefold revelation of truth. First the physical rest we need because God designed the world this way. Second the spiritual rest that Hebrews 4 talks about by coming to Jesus and acknowledging laying down our labors and burdens and resting in his grace and his grace alone and third is Jesus himself. He is our Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of God's great principle of rest and deliverance. God be with you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.